0: Cineca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by my old boon companion, Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you, Jeremy?
1: I am doing very, very well, Kaiser. Our streak continues. Our streak continues. Beautiful blue sky day in Beijing once yes. again. Yes. Take Sorry. that, pollution whiners. It's all because of us, of
0: course. Uh, today, we're gonna. I'm gonna. I'm what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce things and then hand over to you because you know... I know fuck all about the topic that we're actually going to be talking about, which is the game of golf, which is a, a game that's consuming the precious little arable land that is available to China. China has something like 7% of the world's arable land and, of course, about a fifth of its fucking population. So, <laughs> And, of course, you know, in this water-impoverished country, uh, especially here in the north, I can't continence the idea of having uh, golf courses for rich assholes. But anyway, uh, we have <laughs> today... <laughs> Uh, After that rant, I'm going to shut up for the rest of the show Um, We have today Dan Washburn, who was the founder uh, and editor of Shanghaiist An excellent site out of Shanghai, now part of the Gothamist Empire Uh, And he is now chief content officer for the Asia Society, working out of New York He's the author of The Forbidden Game, God, no, Golf and the Chinese Dream, not God It's just Golf and the Chinese Dream (laughs) I'm in one of those moods today, Jeremy. I'm sorry. Well, you, you know what?
1: I, I think I'll take over here. Dude, but I will okay. also suggest go. that this book has a lot more of interest to you than you might think because it's about golf, but like many ways of looking at China through golf, you can see uh, many different things about this country. Um, we'll let's see, get straight into Dan it. Uh, Dan, so oh, Dan. The Forbidden Game. I mean, why did you decide to write about golf in China? Well, you know,
2: I was um, I was a sports writer before I moved to China in 2002, and uh a random encounter led to me doing some golf stories for ESPN.com. This was in around 2005. And it was pretty standard fare uh, reporting on these big international tournaments that were starting to pop up, especially in Shanghai. And, uh, I mean, the story was basically about what is this foreign game doing in a country where virtually no one played it. Uh Um, And... You know, I did a few stories and then the longer I lingered around the game, the more I realized that the story of, of golf in China um, actually had very little to do with golf. And surprisingly, it did uh, turn into be a, a, a very good window through which to examine modern China. So Kaiser, it's it's really, I you know, I've been describing it for years as a book about golf in China, but it's actually a book about golf in China that's not really about golf oh excellent it's a it's a a china (laughs) book so you can read it you can relax
1: (laughs) no i I, I knew that i
0: was just i was just being deliberately you know provocation or uh, provocative so
1: but i mean you know your attitude kaiser is really the the official attitude of the chinese government is the same isn't it dan i mean golf can you describe the legal status of golf yeah why, why
2: forbidden game Right. Well, golf has always had a, uh, or I should say China has a, always had a complicated relationship with golf. Um, there were several courses uh, prior to 1949, um, in, mostly in Shanghai, a couple in Beijing. Um, Mao came in and like many things, he, he denounced golf as a bourgeois pastime. He called it the sport for millionaires. And And a lot. He was right, (laughs) right, and it still is today. And back then, so a lot of the um, the existing courses were dug up or repurposed. The Hongqiao Golf Club, um, which was pretty well known in Shanghai, is now the site of the Shanghai Zoo, and you can still see the clubhouse as part of part of the part of the zoo buildings there. Um, And it wasn't until 1984 when China was opening up, um, the leadership saw golf as a way to attract foreign investment so Uh it's 30 years ago that the uh the first golf course in modern china opened in Guangdong province Mm -hmm. but the game has always had uh, an image problem and rightfully so it's prohibitively expensive to play the game um it's very much an elitist pursuit if you encounter any average chinese and and they're familiar with the game they will call it the rich man's game, mm-hmm. and that's that's what it is. It's um, enjoyed by a very small sliver of the population, um, and it it runs up against a lot of the a lot of issues uh, key to the country right now. You've got the rural land rights disputes. Mm-hmm. You've got the growing gap between rich and poor. You've got this kind of wild west real estate expansion. You've got plenty of corruption and a lot of political intrigue, because it is a, a political taboo, um, the game is still politically taboo, because any government official should not be able to afford to play the game, should not be able to afford to have a, a membership, um, so they have to officially keep it at, at arm's length. And so since 2004, the construction of new golf courses in China has technically been illegal, technically. What about the ones that, that already exist? So uh, in 2004, when Beijing issued this moratorium, um, they cited the illegal seizure of farmland, they cited an out-of-control real estate market, all very valid concerns. Um, But what they did was in effect turn their back. They issued this moratorium um, and then didn't enforce it and let what they were supposedly trying to stop grow more out of control. So in 2004, there were 176 courses, according to state media, 11 of which were officially legal, meaning they had the word "golf" in their in their business license. Uh-huh. And over the last 10 years, since the moratorium has been in place, no other country in the world has built more cl- courses than China. Not even close. The number. What's now, the current estimate? Now? It's between 600 and 1,000. That's the thing. No Jesus one knows Christ. the exact number because it's not regulated in any way. Um, it was a few years ago that the land ministry uh, turned to satellite images and trying to just pinpoint all the different courses to try to get a handle on the number. And this is how, where the estimate of six
0: hundred to a it sounds like. Uh, that, that I mean, county.
2: you know, you'll you'll see reports in Chinese media or, of around six hundred. It was when I started seeing the thousand estimate that was in in the last year. Okay, um, but I mean, it, you know, they have been growing by the hundreds. Each year, whereas in the rest of the world, um, the number of courses is shrinking, especially in the states. So, in the golf course construction industry, the saying always was: "If you're not working in China, you're probably not working at all." But it's mm. such a, a a weird business environment because you're in this
0: regulatory gray zone. Yeah,
2: and you, you know it's it's banned but booming, um, and it's it's actually and recently it's. Um, I don't think it's booming anymore. What explains the unwillingness, especially now in the last couple of years
0: during Xi Jinping's crackdown? Uh, for, for, why haven't they gone after it more aggressively?
2: Well, they are starting to go after it aggressively right now. Um, what I've been hearing recently is, the, is that the construction of golf courses has almost come to a complete stop. And mm-hmm. there are strong rumors that they're going to be closing as many as 100 courses in the country Um next year perhaps but there's always been lots of of rumors everybody says oh things are going to change or this will happen after spring festival this will get better after the new regime comes in and it, it, it generally doesn't happen but the trend has always been moving upward and now i'm not sure that um that's going to be the case. Right, well, the regulatory
1: scares are always par for the course. What what about the players? Uh, Are you seeing a growth in the the number of players here, and is it starting to... I mean, you know, in other countries, it's not really a rich man's game anymore. I mean, in the United States, you can... there are places where you can play golf relatively cheaply, and there are many people to play it, right? Right. Are you seeing that here, or is it still the preserve of the elites?
2: It's still the elites, but, you know, there are more and more elites now in in China. More people have money. Um, So, it is one of the few countries in the world where the number of golfers is on the rise. Mm. Now, it's still technically 0% of the population, but 0% of 1.4 billion can still be a decent amount of of people. And uh, it is a demographic that has certain brands and businesses salivating and is the type of consumer that they want to target. So you'll see the big tournaments... um, still come to China more and more, Um, and they see it as even though it's starting from nothing and there are all these obstacles to the game here, and it does have an image problem, it is one of the only markets in the world that is uh, on the rise. So Dan, your book follows three individuals, if I understand correctly, uh,
0: and uh, just sort of uses them as vehicles for us to understand the game and the game in the broader context of China's modernization. Uh, who are these three people? How did you select them? And, and could you give us, you know, sort of quick thumbnail bios of who they are? And,
2: uh... Right. Well, I didn't want the book to be uh, just a dry work of nonfiction, one chapter on this topic, another chapter on this topic. I wanted it to be alive and, and character driven. So the story is told through the eyes of, of these three men who are um, involved in China's bizarre golf scene in one way or another. Um uh, there's an American in the golf course uh, construction industry. His name is Martin. Um, he got into the the China golf course construction industry rather reluctantly in the in the '90s, um, and people thought he was somewhat crazy for coming here because the industry was booming elsewhere, especially in the United States. But he stuck with it and um, eventually learned how things work or don't work in in China, and has been able to ride the wave of, of development here and has been rather successful. So he gives the reader this literal ground level view of what it's like, um, to, to exist in that, you know, the, the business and political labyrinth that is China and especially mm-hmm. existing in this legally nebulous area. Um, and so, and he also gives the reader, a, you know, a Westerner to, to relate to, um, and then another character is named Wong, and he is a villager in Hainan Province um, on the outskirts of Haikou. where I imagine there's got to be a lot of golf courses. Hainan is one of the places where where golf has a, a tentative green light because it's it's you know they're trying to pitch Hainan as the the next Hawaii, Hawaii or, or Bali or whatever it is this year. And so life for him um, you know hadn't changed much over the years. It was kind of a, you know, a, a slow a slow way of life down there. He lives in this ancient village. All the villagers live in these lava rock homes with uh, gable tile, tile roofs. Um, but in 2007, things changed dramatically. Uh, the villagers learned that this huge development was moving in next door to their village and would actually be taking some of the land that the villagers worked on. They farmed lychee trees or did other things on this land. And it... It's, it's a huge development. Originally, when it was planned, it was um, supposed to be 36 courses in one development. 36, by, 18 whole courses. Yeah, by oh, far the God. biggest. By far the biggest. Uh, the, the plot of land originally was 1.5 times the size of Manhattan, basically the size of Hong Kong Island. Um, that ended up not being, it didn't materialize. When I was down there reporting, it was they were aiming for 22 courses. Right now, they have 10. It's what turned into what's now called Mission Hills High Co. And so uh, Wong's story shows how these developments um, can impact um, residents of rural China. Um, And I think he shows how how adaptable uh, folks in rural China need to be in the face of this breakneck development, not just golf, but there's all sorts of other development going on. Um, What did he end up doing? Uh, He ended up actually not beating them, but joining them. Right. So he, um, he was one of the lucky ones, and he, a plot of land that he um, was able to keep happened to be right on the borderline of the, of the golf course or the golf complex. And normally it's the, the golf complexes that build the walls to keep out the riffraff. But when Wong saw that he had this tiny plot of land so close to the complex, he built the wall because he wanted to keep them out. And it turned out that he his uh, piece of land was right across the wall from where they were building the worker dormitories for this huge complex. Mm. Ten thousand people were supposed to come live there, and so he turned this into a, a positive. He um, he built a business that catered to those people. A little a little shop turned in, then eventually turned it into a restaurant. Um, so he kind of rolled with the punches and tried to figure out. Okay, this is dramatically changing my village. You know the. Certain parts of the village are being ripped apart because there were haves and have-nots. Not everybody was able to sell some land. Sure. Um, but he was thinking about his children and how can, I, how can I support them and their future? You know, I don't have my land for the lychee trees anymore. Other things are drying up too. How can I try to make this as, as positive a situation as possible and, and embrace the change in a way?
0: Great, so that's two of them. Two so we have Martin and Mr. Wong, and... right?
2: And at the heart of the book is the 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 person I spent the most time with. His name is Joe shu Xu, and, uh-huh. and he's a peasant farmer turned security guard turned professional golfer.
1: <laughs> it, that, I mean, that's uh, he makes the book, doesn't he? Because uh, he, to me, he's the the guy who's sort of one of those characters of contemporary China, the yeah. peasant turned golf pro. I mean, the the contradictions. The to me, he he embodies the Chinese dream, or at
2: least one definition of the Chinese dream, the one that is most closely related to the American dream. I mean, Joe comes from this really poor mountain village in Guizhou province, one of the poorest provinces in China. Uh, when he was growing up, his, his only dream was to get out of the village. Um, and he ended up going to this kind of military police training school um, and basically it ended up being kind of a factory for security guards. And he and a bunch of his, um, his classmates, um, they kind of dropped out, and then they, they headed to Guangzhou in search for work. That was the boom town then in the 90s. Um, and they became security guards at something called a golf course. And that, he was in his early 20s. He had never heard of the game before. And that was his first introduction to this game. Um, and when he saw this was at Guangzhou International Golf Club, he saw the golf course, it was the, the most beautiful place he'd ever seen. Um, and when he watched these, these men playing this strange game, it actually seemed somewhat familiar to him, because as a villager, when they were would be grazing the cattle, the kids would dig a hole in the ground, wad up a ball of paper, and, and see who could hit it in the hole with their, either their farming equipment or a, or a stick of bamboo. Um, so Joe desperately wanted to try this game, uh, but he was just a lowly security guard, and it was forbidden at this this elite private club. So the first section of his story involves his, uh, you know, it's the ultimate underdog story in a way. He's training in secret. Um, to, to try to play this this game that he is so fascinated by he he takes discarded golf clubs puts them together and starts hitting balls behind the worker dormitory and he has a an arrangement with the the maintenance staff that if he breaks any windows he'll help repair the windows <laughs> he takes the ball out to the green and under the moonlight and rolls it and just to see how it how it rolls um, and it's a several years of struggle before he's able to actually get on a course and. Even once he's able to get there, there's always these, these barriers. Like peasants will come on and steal the T-markers for the medal, and the security team would get blamed for it, so he'd be banned from the course for several more months. And it, So it's this the first several years before he actually gets to play on a course regularly. But he plays enough and has enough raw talent and enough dedication that he eventually becomes one of the first golfers on this, this China tour. This domestic golf tour that launched in 2005, um, and that's where I met him in, uh, in 2006. I was I was doing a story just because um, I knew a lot of these guys had these these crazy backgrounds, that, you know, so unlike anything you see you know, on the PGA tour or the European tour. Who is the typical?
0: pro golfer then i mean he's obviously not a businessman but i mean you know in in the united states you start in in high school or even even earlier usually your, your father or, or you know some uncle is a, a
2: golfer you play on a college team oh, how does it happen here are there are there well it's changed so when joe was starting out you know the first couple generations of chinese pros were very much blue collar golfers huh. from poor backgrounds who stumbled into the game randomly just like joe and viewed the game not as there was no hope for a you know a rich lifestyle or, or fame because um, you know professional golfers from China you know the, there was it there worked. wasn't anything to it you know aspire to really but for these guys they found out that they could coach the game and earn a much better living than working on a farm or in a factory and it was this kind of entry into this new world they were brushing shoulders with. With people they wouldn't have been able to brush shoulders with, otherwise. Are they
0: are they aware of the the stigma? Are they aware of of of, of the sort of social uh, chasm that that separates them ordinarily from from that? I mean, are they are they kind of uh, aware of, of, of what golf has come to represent, to symbolize, not just in China but globally? I mean, are are they kind of?
2: I think they are. They're definitely think... aware of that. I mean, especially a guy like. Joe he was on the other side of the coin uh from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean he was this lowly security guard not allowed to play. Um so I think uh he viewed it as, you know, if I can get into this game I am moving up a rung on the on the social ladder. And so he supports himself essentially now by by teaching people the swing and te- teaching people Right. So how I mean how to he was chip, how to putt, you know. the way he earned money was always from coaching, it nice. was very hard to earn money from winnings from tournaments. In fact, on the first few years on the tour, he lost money. It was very much a, a labor of love for him. He wanted to compete amongst the best, and he wanted to see how how good he could get. But um, most of the guys on the tour uh, relied on either coaching. A lot of them made money from gambling, um, <laughs> depending on the you know the local clubs that they would be involved with. Local businessmen would like to take them out on the course, and they, they would maybe sponsor them in a way, or bet on 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 certain holes. Um, so there was such a it was such a unique time um, for professional golf in China, and it mirrors in some ways professional golf in the West, say hundred years ago, huh. when the you know the amateurs were the uh, the well-to-do. And the pros were, were this ragtag group of itinerant uh, workers, basically. They'd been largely for immigrants. A- yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, there, what there is this this relation there. But for guys like Joe and his contemporaries, these guys who come from these these uh, these random backgrounds, their window of opportunity to be successful competitively in China, if it's not already closed, it's it's is coming close to being close because you could see it happening. The first generation of Chinese golfers who grew up able to play the game from a young age, come from wealthy families, their parents could pay for coaching, could pay to to travel, you know, to travel to tournaments. Whereas guys like Joe were self-taught, they never had a coach. Um, And you saw this young generation coming up alongside of of Joe's generation, and the contrasts were were, were very striking. That's fascinating, um, and it was kind of like a changing of the guard. And it happened so fast. the The window for these blue collar guys was was quite short lived. Um, and I think now you're going to see most of the Chinese golfers are are going to be these young, well to do golfers. Maybe spent a lot of their youth in in Florida. And now that golf's back in the Olympics, there are the these golfers who are um, funded by the state, too. Do you, do you think that will make a difference to, to golf in China, the fact that it's become an Olympic sport? It will make a difference, but perhaps not in the way that we think. It's not um, spawning some sort of grassroots movement to get as many people involved in the game as possible, and you know, by odds, then we'll, we'll have better golfers. Um, the Chinese government's approach to this is by creating an elite national... Golf schools. Yeah, so each province has one... Um, and there's this elite national team. Um, and it's it's really not pulling from the bottom up. It's it's pulling from the, the, the top down. Because if you're the type of golfer who's going to catch the eye of the national team, it means you've already been um, performing well in junior tournaments. And to do that, that means you probably had to come from a pretty well-to-do family who had the means to uh, support this career. But what the Chinese government is doing now is pretty unprecedented. They're putting in a ton of money into this elite uh, team of of young professional golfers um, because, obviously, we all know that uh, China places a lot of value on Olympic medals. And um, golf is now an Olympic sport for the first time in, in more than, than 100 years. And the way that you qualify for the Olympics, it's not just that China can create a team and say, okay, here's our team. We're going to Rio. Um, You have to qualify by earning world ranking points on professional tours internationally. And there are very few Chinese golfers doing that now. Mm -hmm. So this uh, national team, China is funding every aspect of their careers, room, board, training, travel, to try to get more and more Chinese golfers playing on these tournaments, so they can accumulate the world ranking points that would allow them to qualify for the Olympics. So it's not going to be an immediate impact. You won't be Rio then; it may be next. Right? You know, in 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 Rio, uh, it's going to happen faster for China on the women's side. There's already uh, Feng Shanshan. It doesn't is,
1: everything? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Feng Shanshan is one of the uh, top ten golfers in the world right now. Right. Um, she's won a major tournament. Um, and so she could probably make some noise. What's, what's her background? How did she she become? I mean,
0: the I think sort of I, didn't, I haven't lo- done much lo- 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 reporting
2: nah. on her, but she's from Guangzhou, and I think her dad might have been an official in a in a sports related department. Okay. Um, but I know that she did, as a teenager, go do some training. I think in South Carolina. Ah. Um, but I wouldn't say that she comes from an elite family. Um, not poor, but uh, not not elite either. But her situation is quite interesting in that you know she has won at the top level, uh, but she talks about coming back to China and really not getting recognized. I mean, there's obviously a certain the the golf fans will know who she is, but it's not like she's reached the mainstream in any way, and I think that's reflected in her sponsorships too she struggles to get domestic sponsorships and that could either be a reflection on the chinese brands um not thinking that the golf market is is right for them or maybe it's something to do with the image problem and they just don't feel comfortable getting involved in that way is there an effort to keep it out of the mainstream here in china i mean for example i I
0: don't remember ever having flipped through cctv5 and seeing golf televised is is that
2: um i don't know if there's a a concerted effort, but it's just such a a niche sport that it does exist outside the mainstream. And I mean, it's a it's a country with 700 million peasant farmers, so it's not really um, it's out of the reach. It's not even something that the right. average Chinese person can can think about.
1: What about, uh, I mean, I don't know if they still call it putt-putt, but there's like mini little golf courses like, uh, you know, made of concrete mostly. Um, uh, I mean, that seems like something that would be very appealing in China somehow. Miniature golf. Miniature golf, yeah. Is, that, is I that, would is have that liked to thing? have miniature
2: golf when I was living in Shanghai, but I, there was a couple that popped up, didn't do very well. I think there's one down in Kunming, um, and there was a big tournament there, but it's not... A mini golf tournament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's not... So, I don't know. It's not. I don't know if that's the way to 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 get interest uh, amongst a different class of people, you know, where the where the game is a bit more accessible is at the driving ranges. Mm. Um, so you'll see driving ranges be. Uh, there's one right by your house, Jeremy.
1: Actually, that's an. Uh, I think that's a, a small, like a nine hole golf course. Actually, it's not okay. a driving. No, I mean, there,
0: there, there's yeah. also a driving range. So there. Yeah. I mean, right
1: driving ranges yeah. are are how you can make
2: it a bit more accessible because it's not not quite as expensive and. Um, it's, it's easier just to get, get a taste of it. Right. Um, but it's still... It's still, I mean, a very small sliver of the population is, is playing the game.
0: So I'm, I'm sold. I mean, I, I think that the, the idea for the book and, and the vehicle of these three individuals, I think this it sounds like it was extremely well, well chosen. I, I'm, I'm going to read it. Good, Kais. I'm yeah, glad your mind right. is still, I, uh,
1: I, open enough to be converted. Over <laughs> however, I,
0: I do want to turn, turn the conversation to the, uh, to the environmental impact. Of it, golf well, courses.
1: and a little bit more than that, maybe we can even extend it to is golf actually evil or not? I mean, you know, we're talking about the development of the sport that... I Definitely, the environment, uh, environmental issues. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of China. R-
0: representative of all the baneful aspects of, of, of globalization. I mean, that and, is like and, and
1: Chinese polity. style breakneck development, right. r- r- riding to roughshod over you know people's rights, taking their land. Yeah, I mean, what and what environmental sort of take? degradation. Right. I
2: mean, the the, the the truth is in China. You know, all these courses were getting built um, in the big cities. Yes, there was demand, but a lot of these courses are not. we not getting built because there was any uh, definite connection to a, a need uh, to, to uh, accommodate more golfers, the golf courses were all uh, ways to sell luxury homes. You know, it's, it's part of the, the real estate game. Um, I, you know, whether golf is evil or not, I, I would say that the growth is somewhat inevitable and there are smart ways um, to grow the game what what the government did by turning its back and basically letting it grow unregulated, I think was obviously the the wrong approach, and the guys working in the industry they really you know they were tired of looking over their shoulders for the you know the Beijing Gulf police and seeing helicopters going overhead and wondering what what was coming next. They wanted to know what are the hoops we need to jump through to do this the right way um because there are you know there are regulations. Um, there is environmental regulations, and there are ways that um, you can build a golf course in a smart way or only build them in areas that uh, that can sustain them or on have enough on, anyway. on land that's not you know not arable land um, and it's and they they can they can recycle the the water. Um, there there are ways to do it correctly, but I don't know that the developers really had that in mind, and it wasn't like the, the regulators. Who, 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 were, who, would... By the way, who would have regulatory oversight over something like this? I mean, is it just sort of the land use? I think it varies. It's local. It's okay. local, okay. Um, and it it varies from place to place how much things are, are enforced. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of the, the red envelope culture here. Um so I, you know, people I talk to in the industry, they said a lot of times they were left to police themselves, and you know, some people are going to do that, and 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 some <laughs> some some, de- <laughs> some developers are are obviously not going to do that. Um, so I, I think um, there's a way to see it grow in a in a at least moderate sustainable way, but there's no doubt that um, you know it's a it's a It's a game that requires a ton of land in a nation with very little arable land uh, It often requires huge water resources in a country that has some very dire um, water shortages um, so it is something that um,
1: so does, to, to, seem to, to, fit to in some summarize ways. golf doesn't have to be evil, but it usually is well. I don't know about that. I mean, I, I think in in China,
2: um, it there there ha- could have been a smarter way to to ease it, ease it on its path.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, I guess my, my my final question for you uh, before we move to recommendations is: uh, we, we've seen a choking off of the supply now uh, in the last couple of years, as you've suggested. The the rate of of, of new golf courses coming online is slowed appreciably. Uh, and maybe has even been scaled back. Uh, what about demand? I mean, the other side of the equation is a, a lot of these people, presumably, I and mean, they're not just uh, businessmen, but also officialdom used to play the game an awful lot. Is, is demand now shrinking as a result of, of the crackdown on, on corruption?
2: Well, it was always kind of taboo for officials to play, but um, obviously some some did. Sure. And I've been talking to people just in the last couple of days here that say, yes, I mean, like... Many other things, uh, part of the corruption crackdown. Uh, you know, the golf habit has had to go go away for the officials, but the game still is growing in China. More, there are more golfers each year, and if they are going to close down, you know, a bunch of courses, if the the rate of construction is 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 going Slowly. to come to a halt or slow, one wonders how that is. What's going to happen there? If the number of golfers keeps, up, yeah. if the number of golfers keeps going up and the um, number of courses doesn't, um, at some point you're going to reach uh, you know max overload there. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's 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 a very um, you know it's I haven't been back in China for three years. I see, and I've been struck by the amount of uh, pessimism and concern that I, I hear from a lot of people. Um, not just in the golf industry but in other industries as well um, so it's going to be interesting um, to see how to see how things play out interesting indeed and i look forward to, to seeing the next installment when
0: you uh um, do a little research and, and and uh write write something about this please let us know Uh, Jeremy, time for recommendations. And what do you have for us this week, Mr. Goldcorn?
1: All right. I have this week uh, something I've mentioned on the podcast before, uh, ESWN, uh, the blog, the the classical blog. Roland Song somehow uh, posted again just this week. um, And he's posting translations of Chinese language reporting on Occupy uh, Hong Kong, Occupy Central. Um, And they're quite interesting uh, particularly because um many of the source materials are written in that Cantonese Chinese uh which even though written Chinese is supposed to be readable by all, but that Cantonese stuff is not very intelligible to people schooled in. Um, and he, he's basically just translating these materials, which I think is a, a valuable service. Where's he been? What's he been doing? I, I have know, no he idea. He's vanished from my... I have no idea. He popped up, and I, I sent a tweet. I wrote a tweet to him saying, please don't go away again, but uh, no response. Uh, I have no idea. He's already gone away
0: again. That's a pity. Well, um, make sure to catch him while he's still available. Dan, do you have a recommendation for us this week?
2: I do, and if I may, it's a little self-serving. It's an Asia Society... Uh, Recommendation. Uh, my colleagues in Los Angeles are, are hosting the, the US China Film Summit, um, talking about how Hollywood and China are, being, are becoming more and more intertwined. Um, and uh, next week, or maybe that's this week when this, when this is airing, um, if you go to asiasociety.org, you will be able to watch all of the panel discussions and see some reporting from my colleague Jonathan Landreth at Chinafile.com. Yeah, yeah. and Jonathan, of course, was a, a, a film correspondent for lot. of that. Right. And enough uh, enough my other time. colleague, Tom Nagorski, will also be writing from from the summit as well. And also uh, my colleague, Jonathan Karp, who also used to be a, a journalist here. Um, so uh, look for that at AsiaCity.org and Chinafile.com. It should be interesting to see how Hollywood and China are learning to coexist and uh, grow together.
0: That's an excellent recommendation, and it's not at all self-serving. I mean, I mean, you're perfectly welcome to plug Asia society or China file any time you want on our
2: show. Um,
0: <laughs> um, I guess my turn. Uh, a former guest on our show, Christine Larson, has written a terrific piece in Science. She reports for Science. Uh, in ScienceMag.org, there's a uh, piece about China's efforts to combat Ebola, uh, and I think it's 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 a very impressive thing. It's not only are they, you know, putting their money where their mouth is. I mean, there is, of course, a very, very large Chinese population in the affected areas of Sierra Leone and, and, and um, Guinea and, 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 of course, Liberia. Uh, they're also uh, sending a crack team of, of troops, PLA troops there, to build a quarantine ward. Uh, it's some excellent reporting in science. Uh, we'll put a link to it up. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, quite impressed so far with the kind of low key uh, response. I hope that I, I don't regret being impressed with the low key response that, that China's had, considering it's very, very large um, population, not only of Chinese living in West Africa, but also of West Africans who travel regularly to to China, especially to the south. Um, they're so far only basically testing people for fevers, I have not reported any cases of Ebola so far.
1: I have to say, I mean, this is one of those times when, I mean, one of the very few times when one slightly appreciates a censored media. If you compare with the absolutely outrageous, ridiculous scaremongering going on in the U.S. media uh, in the last couple of weeks about Ebola, and I mean, can you imagine if if that kind of coverage was in China, it would be SARS and Ebola, you know, that kind of Fox News, ISIS and Ebola coming over the border, I mean, it would be a complete freak out so I think uh, we're quite lucky that so far it's been low key you said that touch wood touch wood
0: <laughs> Dan thanks that was fascinating and I really am going to read your book that's uh, it's great I'll, I'll put it on the list uh, thanks so much thanks for it. having me I'm glad
1: I won you over yeah it was good um, only took 40 minutes <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm easy
0: uh, Jeremy and I guess we'll, we'll see you guys next week right yeah okay terrific we'll see you next week on the Civica podcast and until then take care bye bye